Um, you are at this point dismissed. You are free to go with Johanna and enjoy the lesson she has planned for you and the activities. So go and enjoy those. And for the rest of us, um, if you have your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and we will get you one. We have them in both English and Icelandic. So if you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hands. I know everyone has apps these days, but you know, it's nice to have a physical copy in your hand sometimes. Anyway, raise your hand if you need one and we'll get it to you. For those of you now with your Bibles, open with me to Acts chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today, the first seven verses. Okay, so open with me to Acts chapter 6, and if you're able, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Okay, this is Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The Word of the Lord says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased to the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of, the, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word today, I pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. I pray that your spirit would reveal to us any sins, any areas of our life that we have not surrendered to you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us, all of us in here, of sin and righteousness, that we might turn and repent and experience times of refreshing. And so, Father, now as I speak, I pray that you would, you would speak through me. I pray your spirit would give me the words to say. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the one speaking, that I would get out of the way, that it would not be, not, that it would not be my words, that it would not be me. I pray that if I say anything that is unhelpful, I pray that your spirit would just not allow that to stick. I pray that your gospel would be clear today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So... For those of you who are jumping jumping in with us, we've been in Acts. Uh, we've been going through the book of Acts for the last few weeks. Uh, a little longer than that, actually, the last few months. So remember a couple chapters ago, uh, so the church is starting to grow at this point, at this point in church history. Uh, the Spirit of God is getting the church going. So we saw a couple chapters ago that the apostles first started to experience uh, some persecution. Uh, back in chapter 4, they, the Holy Spirit healed a lame beggar at their hands. And so they used that opportunity to preach the gospel, and the, the high priest and the council were not happy with that, so they brought them in to threaten them and to try and stop them from, uh, from continuing to spread this word. And so we, see, we saw the first kind of overt attack against the church um, from Satan. 
And then as we moved on through chapter 4, Peter gives an amazing defense uh, of the gospel, uh, preaches the word, and then we see through chapter 5, we see now, having resisted an overt attack, that the church, Satan now tries to attack the church from within uh, with hypocrisy. We saw the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how they they chose rather to build themselves up, they chose rather to lie to the Holy Spirit and to the church, hoping to protect their own reputation. And we see that that, that God does not stand for that. We saw that that was dealt with, and the church survives. And we see after each of these stories that the Holy Spirit continues to grow the church. We see that the number of disciples is increasing, and we see that thousands are being saved. And then last week we saw in the second half of five, we saw that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were jealous of the apostles and jealous of the success of this movement. And so they just go and seize the apostles and put them in prison, and God frees them and tells them to go right back to the temple and to keep preaching all the words of this life. And the council is confused because they go to the prison, they're not there, they're, they're confused, they don't know what's going on. Finally, someone tells them, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple preaching the word of God. And so they send and go get them, they bring them, they bring them back before the council. The council threatens them again, and this time tries to humiliate them and dishonor them in this culture, so they beat them uh, and attempt to discredit them. But the apostles counted joy that they are worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And we see that their eyes were fixed on a treasure that is above in heaven, that their eyes were fixed on the things above, and their 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 goal, their their treasure was not here on this earth. And so now that brings us, so that's where we are now. Uh, look with me uh, just at our first our, our, our first chapter here, or I'm sorry, the first verse of our passage now says, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number. So that's where we are. The church is growing at the hands of God. The Spirit of God is moving. And I have two, my main point has kind of two prongs to it that I want us to, to consider today. You're right, it does look a lot better when you come to the computer. So our main, my main idea has just two, two prongs to it today. The first and foremost, that Jesus cares about how his bride, about how the church functions here on earth. Jesus, who died to redeem a people for himself, cares about how his church functions on earth. And we're going to start to see uh, some of the principles being laid out in this passage today. And secondly, that kind of goes hand in hand with this, it is ultimately the Holy Spirit it is the Spirit of God who builds His church, ultimately, mm-hmm. not us. And for many of us, whether you're in ministry or not, it can often feel, you can, like me, you can maybe often feel the burden of, I have to build the church of God myself. I have to say the right things. I have to do the right things all the time. And ultimately, it is the Spirit of God. That is a burden that God does not intend for us to take on ourselves. It is ultimately His Spirit, through the ordinary means that He has given us, through the ordinary means of grace, it is his spirit that will build his church. So those are the two, the two prongs at this point that I want us to see, uh, that I want us to be thinking about as we jump in now. And so now in those days, look with me now at our, at our passage in the first verse. It says, now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's going on here? First of all, the Hellenists um, are Greek-speaking Jews. So at this point in Israel's history, they've been dispersed a couple different times um, for not following the law of God, for just having constant like, decades and centuries even of, of not following the commands and not honoring their covenant with God. And so they've been dispersed multiple times at this point. 
Hellenists, um, Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews who are now back in Jerusalem, but their primary language, their mother tongue, is Greek. And so now as the church is growing, there's, it's not just Judaism anymore. Now it's, this is Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so now we have multiple races in it. We, you have Hellenistic Jews, you have Hebrew-speaking Jews, more and more people. Like at Pentecost, for example, there were people who spoke all sorts of languages that were hearing the gospel and were believing. And so now the church is becoming more diverse. And within this, there is, there is a complaint from the Greek-speaking Jews, who were often, by many Hebrew-speaking Jews, were considered kind of second-class Jews, because they weren't considered like pure-blood Jews, uh, because they'd been abroad. There's a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews that the Hebrew widows are being favored, the Hebrew widows within the church are being favored over the Greek-speaking Jews. Uh, yeah, the Greek-speaking Jews within the church. And so first and foremost, I also want to define what a church is before we, before we look at this complaint. Uh, a church, we, all, we talk about the global church, which is globally all believers worldwide. And that is what, when Jesus came to this earth, he lived and died and rose again to redeem a people for himself. And that is the global church of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Mm-hmm. Everyone who believes, everyone who comes under the blood of Jesus, mm-hmm. who accepts this free gift, you are a Christian and you are part of the global church. And this is the bride of Christ. The church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. And so he came to die for her, to sanctify her, to wash her in the blood, and to purify her with his word. And so we have the global church, and then we have individual bodies all throughout the nation, like this one. And a church is a group of believers who have covenanted together, who have come and we worship together. We are involved in each other's lives. We hold each other accountable. We rebuke one another. We encourage one another. We worship together. We take communion together. We baptize believers here. And we are little, we are like little embassies. Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. And so these local churches are like little embassies to the world. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, who lived and died and rose and shed his blood for his church, cares about how his embassies, his churches here, function on earth. Mm-hmm. And so the complaint arises within within the church, and the church has already withstood overt and subtle attacks, and this now is, a, is an attempted distraction. And this could very easily split the church. There are racial tensions now within the church. There's potential injustice happening in the church. And the church is still young at this point. It's still in its infancy. And this threatens to fracture and split the church already, depending on what the apostles do, and depending on how the church handles this. And this is a serious complaint. And regardless of whether this this is a perceived slight, like, I mean, it is possible that this is just perceived slight, but it's not actually true. That is possible, or it really is true, and, and, and it needs to be fixed. But regardless, the complaint itself is serious. And the apostles, they recognize it's an issue, and they immediately start to deal with it. But what I think, what I think is interesting, and what I think stands out here, excuse me, is that they don't, they don't dismiss it out of hand. They don't say, no, that's not true. Stop worrying about that. Like, we've got more important things to do. They're being taken care of. Don't worry about it. They don't dismiss it. But they also don't just drop everything and charge headlong in and say, we have to fix this right now. We're the ones to do this. Just 
and run right in. Because this is an attempt by the enemy to use something, something good. Taking care of widows is a good and right thing. Please do not hear me say that that is not important. Taking care of widows and orphans in the eyes of God is so, so important. And this is an attempt by the enemy to distract the 12 apostles from what God has commanded them to do. And so look at what the apostles say. Look at me at verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned to the full number of disciples. So they recognize that there's an issue that they need to deal with right now. Mm-hmm. And so what do they do? They gather the body of believers, of disciples specifically. And for us, what that would look like for us here at Lufthansa is essentially they call a members meeting <laughs> to what are we going to do as a church? How are we going to, this is a serious issue that needs to be addressed and dealt with. How are we going to deal with it? And I want to define what a disciple is, because it's interesting that the 12 sum of the full number of disciples, not necessarily the full number of believers. And now that may be simply because the full number of believers is approaching 10,000 at this point, or if not more, and so that would have, might have been impractical. But regardless, they call the full number of disciples, and it says disciples and not believers, and so I want to define what a disciple of Christ is. Mm-hmm. And so a disciple is someone who is growing, who is learning and becoming more like the person or idea that they are a disciple of. In John 4, in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 23, when Jesus is at his, in Samaria with the woman at the well, he tells her that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so those, those of us who are disciples of Christ, to be a disciple of Christ means to submit one's life fully to Jesus, to the teachings of Jesus. It means to understand that you are a sinner and in need of the grace of God, in need of being covered by Jesus. And it doesn't just stop there, because remember when some of Jesus' last words to his disciples were the Great Commission were to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, Mm -hmm. baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so, we're to go make disciples, not converts. Mm -hmm. Converts can intellectually perhaps agree to Christianity or to the gospel. They might be able to, yeah, I, I agree with that, that makes sense, or, yeah, I get it. But if it stops there, you're not a disciple. To be a disciple means to start practically, practically it means to start walking in repentance. It means to start growing in the fruits of the Spirit. Remember, the Christian life is defined not by being perfect. Mm-hmm. You don't just become perfect when you're saved. Mm-hmm. Rather, the Christian life is defined by a continual repenting, acknowledging your sin and your guilt before God, repenting of it. Repenting means to turn from your sin. Jesus told the woman at the well that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we are continually being sanctified by the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Jesus. The term sanctification is just a fancy theological word. It just means the process of becoming more like Jesus. And it's a work that when we are saved, when we are in Christ, 
the Holy, we are given, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is the seal of our adoption. And the Holy Spirit himself works within us to change us, to transform us, to conform us into the image of Jesus. So suddenly, sins, things you've struggled with, suddenly you begin to be able to resist them. And this is a process. This does not just happen overnight. Mm -hmm. This is a process. And so as you continue to walk, as you now spend time building a relationship with your Heavenly Father, spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer, suddenly you start to change. You start to grow in the fruits of the Spirit. Remember the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And those start to define and characterize your life more and more. And again, this is a process. It's not something that happens overnight. David Platt, a pastor in the United States, he defines being a disciple of Jesus uh, like this. He said, to be a disciple of Jesus is to let his global cause dictate everything you think, desire, and do. To be a disciple of Jesus is to let his global cause dictate everything you think, desire, and do. And so we see that there's, there has to be a transformation from the inside out. We see that this is not just some surface level intellectual agreement. We see that this is, you know, your life becomes defined by this. Mm-hmm. And Jesus' global cause is not some political movement or some economic movement. His global cause is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Mm-hmm. And so that, the gospel, the good news, dictates everything that we think, that we desire, and that we do. It changes us from the inside out. And so that, that is our definition of what a disciple is. And disciples also go and make other disciples. They help teach other people to observe all that Jesus commanded and taught. And so disciples go and make more disciples. Converts, if you're converts, it just stops with them. But disciples go forth and keep reproducing. And so the 12 summon the full number of the disciples and say to them, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, the first thing I want to say about the, about the, the, 12, the 12 apostles, their response to this problem, is that they're not making a value judgment here. They are not saying that they're too good to serve tables or to serve widows. That's not what they're saying here. The service of widows is not somehow lesser than preaching the word of God within this, within, that that service to the body is not somehow lesser. But the 12 have been given a very specific commission by God, by Jesus to go and make disciples, to preach the word. We saw that when they were freed from prison last week, not last week for them, but last week for us, when they were freed from prison, the angel told them to go and stand in the temple and proclaim all the words of this life. Mm -hmm. And at the end of chapter five, we see that they were doing that in every day in the temple and from house to house, they, the apostles, did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so, Christian, brother and sister, do not undervalue your service to God, to the body. 
just because your service may not be as visible as others or as prominent, don't undervalue your service to God and your service to the body of Christ. Because in God's economy, character and faithfulness matter so much more than earthly accomplishment or earthly pedigree. The apostles here have been given a very specific commission to devote themselves to the ministry of prayer and teaching. And they could handle this, this issue with the widows. They could say, yes, we've got you. Like, we'll do this. Where's the food? Gather the widows. Let's make sure they get fed. They could do that. But then they would be, that would lower their effectiveness in preaching the word and devoting themselves to prayer. And they would not take care of the widows as effectively as maybe someone else could because their interests suddenly would be divided. And so they recognize that they've been given a specific commission to preach the word and to devote themselves to prayer. And oh, brother and sister, that we would devote ourselves to the word and to prayer. If you would have a relationship with God, the basic spiritual disciplines are time in the word and time spent on your knees praying before your heavenly father. Sometimes we feel distant from God. Sometimes we feel that maybe God's not there. And the first question you should ask yourself and the first introspection you should do is, how is my time in word and in prayer? Mm-hmm. We all have relationships in here, whether it's spouses or good friends, brothers, sisters. If you don't keep in touch with them, if you don't, and I'm not just talking like a once a month kind of thing, if you don't talk to them, you don't spend time with them, the relationship dies. We all have friends in here that we've lost touch with at some point or another because we didn't talk to them anymore. It just, it just stopped. And so how can we expect to be close to God if we never talk with him? If we never read his self-revelation, his revelation of himself to humanity, if we never read his word, if we never spend time praying and talking with him, if we never spend time confessing, praising, worshiping, adoring, just talking with God, talking with our Heavenly Father, who wants us to come before him. Mm-hmm. We can't be close to God if, if we neglect these basic spiritual disciplines. And we can't be disciples of Christ if we neglect our relationship with God. And so the apostles are going to devote themselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word. And we'll see in verse 7 that, in fact, the word of God continues to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplies greatly in Jerusalem. That's the first time that this phrase gets used in Acts. Multiplied greatly. And it's not just the number of believers, it's the number of disciples. It's the number of those who are going forth and reproducing and helping grow more disciples. And so I have a few applications from what we've read so far that I want us to start thinking about. First and foremost, Jesus did not intend for his church, for his bride, to be run by only an elite few. Mm -hmm. Jesus does not intend for one or two or even five people to run his entire church. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation happened about 500 years ago. And one of the things they were breaking away, there were a lot of things that were wrong that they were breaking away from, but one of the things was that religion at this point was very much in the hands of a few elites and withheld, and access was withheld from the common people. And I fear that sometimes we, and I know I'm guilty of this myself, that we in 
modern Western Protestantism have traded the Roman Catholic clergy for the professional pastor. And that sometimes it's just easier to have. It, it would have been easy for the apostles to just say, yeah, we'll deal with that, and not take the time to gather the disciples, not take the time to talk and listen and hear. Like, we're given a very short snippet here, but in reality, this was probably more than just 30 seconds of, <laughs> of text. And that took work, that took effort. But in the end, we see that they were rewarded greatly for it. Jesus does not intend for his church to be run by only an elite few. Rather, he blesses the body with gifts so that the entire church can be built up. We'll see this later in, in a few weeks, um, next month. Uh, we'll be looking uh, specifically at Ephesians 4, but a little preview of that. Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, writes... Never mind. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I thought I had that on the slide, but I, for whatever reason, it's not there. But Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12 says that God gives the apostles, preachers, teachers, shepherds, and priests for the building up of the church, for the equipping of the saints for ministry. And the saints in this is not, again, not the elite, holy few. Everyone who is a believer in Christ is a saint. And it's called such by God. And so... God blesses the church with apostles, pastors, preachers, teachers in order to equip the saints for ministry so that the entire body may, build, may be built up. And so we see that it's not just a couple people trying to run everything. We see rather this is a collective, we're a family here. We see that this is a collective building up of the church. And yeah, the apostles could have done this themselves, but it would have ruined their effectiveness and their faithfulness. To what God had called them to do. And by responding the way they did, we see the body is strengthened. The whole body of Christ is strengthened. And look with me now at verse 5 of our text. And what they said pleased to the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Excuse me. Notice first and foremost that it's not even the apostles that even chose these men, that they told the assembled number of disciples to choose from among them seven men. And notice, look at the qualifications. Seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Notice that it doesn't say, has waiting experience, is good with numbers, has a, a heart for widows. You often hear people in the church saying that, well, I just I have a heart for this specific group of people. And that's awesome, and that's great. And God has blessed you with that, go with that. But that doesn't excuse you from loving and serving other groups mm -hmm. of people as well. And sometimes it's easy for us that just because we don't have the specific gift like I've said this before, I've said in a previous church I was asked to help with the children. And my first response was, I'm not good with kids. Like, they scare me, and I'm not good with them. But that was a need that the church had. And so just because you may not have the specific gift, quote unquote, 
doesn't mean you can't serve in that capacity. Mm-hmm. Amen. This is an international church. A lot of people come and go. They're here for a season and then they go to another church. You may find yourself at a church where your gift, what you're really good at, what God has really blessed you in to serve, is not really needed at that particular church at that time and place. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have another need, like the children. Maybe it's just setting up or tearing down. And you're like, but that's not, that's not how God has gifted me specifically. And pray that God would give you opportunities to exercise and to use the various ways that he has gifted you and be willing to serve in such a way, just be willing to serve in areas that maybe aren't your, your forte, but that your church needs so that the body may be built up. The qualifications here were men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Again, in God's economy, character and faithfulness matter so much more than earthly accomplishment and earthly pedigree. And so, the, the assembled number of disciples, they choose seven men, and the one that stands out is Stephen. It immediately says, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. It's probably the first one that jumped into a lot of their heads as they began to discuss among themselves, okay, who are we going to point to this? This is important. And thinking about what the apostles had said, these are, these are what, this is what we're looking for in our servants and like those who are going to serve in this regard. First one that came to their mind was Stephen. And we'll see later, we'll see this next week. This is a sneak peek of next week. <laughs> Stephen, full of, this is verse 8 of Acts chapter 6, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power. And that's how he's characterized and described. As I was preparing for this, I read and found that the only other person of whom this phrase is used of in the New Testament is Jesus. So Stephen is the first one that popped into people's mind of like, that is someone who is a disciple of Christ, someone who is growing, who is walking faithfully before God. And so we'll see, we'll see more about Stephen next week. But he was the man that stood out. And we see that, we see now in this decision to, to delegate here, we see the first, what would be like proto-deacons. So deacons within the church, and this word is not used in this text. These are, this is what most um, Bible commentators would just, they would refer to these first seven as proto-deacons. And deacons within the church are chief servants. They are those who, through their giftings, serve in, in an area of ministry, in this case, for these seven, the care of widows. And so we see that these first deacons are served, and, and deacons and other members of the church free up the elders, in this case the apostles here, to devote themselves to the preaching of the word mm-hmm. and to the ministry of prayer. And so... Again, Jesus did not intend for his bride to function with an elite few, with an elite clergy. Rather, there is, we're a body, we're a living organism. And we see that this delegation of work, we see now at verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We see that through the exercise of the ordinary means of grace that the Holy Spirit had provided, 
Remember, it's the Holy Spirit that builds this church. It's not us. And the Holy Spirit has given us ordinary ways. He's given us structures, systems, like elders and deacons and being members one of one body together. He's given us those ordinary means of grace so that his church will grow. And it is the Spirit of God that causes the growth. And we also need to be faithful in those just normal ways that God has revealed to us in his word of how Jesus wants his church to run. And the delegation of work, it allows us to be faithful. Remember, we're going to be judged not for how many people came to faith through us or mm -hmm. whatever, however many people we preach the gospel to. We're going to be judged for our faithfulness in what God entrusted us with. Remember the parable of that Jesus tells of the king who goes to a faraway country and he leaves his possessions, he divides them up among his servants, and according to their ability, he gives some more and others less according to their proven ability. And when he comes back, two of the servants have been faithful with what he's given them, and they've increased uh, their master's possessions. But one of them, one of them just took what his master gave him and buries it. The master asks him for an account of what he's done, and he said, and the, the servant says to, the, to his master, I knew you to be a harsh man, and so I buried what you gave me. I didn't want to risk anything, I just buried it. Here, take what's yours. And the master's response is, you wicked servant, why did you not put it in the bank that I might receive what was mine with interest? Like, you couldn't even have done that just really minor thing. Put it in the bank, don't worry about it until I get back. You couldn't have even done that. And so I want us to be thinking, I want us to think how us who are Christians in here, how are we serving our church? How are we using the ordinary means that the Holy Spirit has blessed us with to serve and to build up the body? For example, and this is a bit of a, a, bit of a stretch to work with me on this, if my left arm could talk and just told me, you know, I don't mind being a part of your body. I don't mind still being attached. But every time you need to carry something from the car up to your apartment, or every time you need to, every time you need a second hand, I, I'm not interested. I'm not. I'm just gonna. I just, I just want to be there. Anyway, your right hand's stronger. Anyway, why not? He can just do double the load, right? But that's sometimes how we act. I'm right. As church members, that's sometimes how we are, and sometimes how we behave. We're like, well, I'm, I'm happy to just show up on Sunday. I'm happy to just kind of be here, but I, but I don't want to serve. I don't need to. I don't. I don't want to do. I don't want to do anything. I just want to be here. It's enough that I'm here. My presence is enough. But again, Jesus does not intend for His church to be run only by a select few. We are called members one of the same body. And it's ridiculous to think of your left arm just willfully saying, I just don't want to do anything. <laughs> and in the same way, it's ridiculous that we as members would not want to serve one another. And so I want us to be thinking, I want us to look inside, like examine our hearts and ask ourselves how we're serving 
a local body? How are we serving our brothers and sisters? Because there's blessing that comes from that. Blessing for both you and for your church. And so, in closing, some applications I want us to be thinking through. First and foremost, do not neglect the ordinary means of grace that God has provided for His church. Mm-hmm. So, time in the Word and prayer for your individual walk with God, and then, as our as we set up churches, as we as we are God's embassies here on earth, are we run by a few? Or are we all members of one body, serving one another and serving the church? Secondly, we have to train ourselves and discipline ourselves to be thinking in terms of God's economy. Mm. Character and faithfulness matter so much more than earthly pedigree and earthly accomplishment. We will be judged for our faithfulness. Mm. And then lastly, so what would it look like for our church, for us here at Bluffstone, if we all consistently practiced just the, the means that the Holy Spirit has given us as a church to function? What would it look like if we were all practicing that? If we were all continually seeking after the Lord? If we were all in some small way, again, just because your role is not necessarily very prominent, it might not feel very large. Again, remember, it's faithfulness that matters. So what would it look like if we all practice those ordinary means that God has provided to grow his church? Because again, it will be the spirit of God that builds his church. It will not be us. It will not be our, through our sweat and tears and blood, it will not be us who build some mighty heavenly kingdom for God here on earth. That's not how this works. No. It's the Holy Spirit of God who works in hearts. It's the Holy Spirit who breaks down walls, who shows us our need for a Savior. And so, as we now take communion together, as we now turn to this part of our service where we remember what Jesus did for us, remember the Holy Spirit builds his church that Christ died for. And this is something we do every week. We Jesus commanded us to do this, to, to do this as often as we take it. And so, every week we remember that Jesus came to this earth. He assumed human flesh, he came to this earth, and lived the life that we should have lived, and died the death that we all deserve to die for our rebellion against God. And then God rose him on the third day. Jesus died for his church, and he died for us. He died for the salvation of everyone in in this room, of everyone in the world. It's a free gift of God for any who accept it. So if you're not a believer in here, I would urge you to consider consider your sin before God and know that you can be made right, that you can be made to have right relationship with God because of what Jesus did. And so that, for those of you who are Christians in here, you're welcome to come uh, partake of this, partake of the, of the, the bread and the, and the juice. 
If you're not a Christian in here, it would not be appropriate for you to partake in this. Uh, this is a ritual that we who are Christians do to remember, to remind ourselves of, the, of what Jesus came and did for us. And so if you're not a Christian in here, I would encourage you to not, please don't participate. Rather, take the time to think and reflect on what was said. And then as the worship team leads us in song, um, you, can, you can come up and take whenever you're ready. And I would encourage you and ask you to spend time allowing the Holy Spirit to probe your heart. Just anything that he brings to mind, any sin mm-hmm. that he brings to mind, confess it, repent of it, examine yourselves. Because we, Paul writes to the Corinthian church that if anyone eats of the, eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Mm-hmm. And so examine yourselves now. Any sin that the Holy Spirit brings to light, thank Jesus that he died for it. Confess it, repent of it, and then come and enjoy. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are great, you are mighty, you are holy, you are righteous, and you are just. Thank you that when Adam and Eve first sinned, when you would, would have been perfectly justified to have struck them both down right there and then for their rebellion, that you chose not to do that. Rather, right there and then, you promised that you would send a Savior, that you would send Jesus, who came down, took on earthly flesh, and lived the life for us that we should live, that we should have lived, but we can't live and died the death for us that we all deserve to die because of our sin and our rebellion towards you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sealing us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the ordinary means that we are given to function as your church, to function as your disciples. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict us of any sin in our hearts, any any areas of our life that we have not surrendered to you, I pray that you would convict us of those. I pray that we would repent and turn from them. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you that you loved us so much, even when we were dead in our sins and, tra- and trespasses, even when we were unlovable. But you still came down and loved us and died for us. I pray that we would never get over that amazing good news, that amazing fact. And I pray that we, as your people, would be faithful to go forth and make disciples. Thank you. Thank you for shedding your blood for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.